Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan. I'm Mark Kastner. This is the Sounder at Heart podcast. Joined by my co-hosts, Mickey Turner, Susie Rantz, Tim Foss, Beth Mantle, and Dave Clark. This has been an extremely weird podcast. How are they going to be able to handle that? Just the bottom line is they don't have an answer to that. There was never really a time when I was super concerned. Seattle did fine. There's a reason they got signed to first team contract. Very special guest, Brian Spencer, head coach of the Seattle Sounder. You know who he is. Brian how are you doing? I'd start off, Jeremiah, by saying one thing, and this isn't my quote. I have to attribute this to Tom Dutra. He always says, tough times don't last, tough people do. Welcome back to YachtCon 22.5. This is part two. Joining me now is the Sounders president of soccer and general manager, Garth Logaway. Welcome back to YachtCon. Uh, this is an annual tradition for you. Thank you. Thank you. So that, is there half a yacht this year? If it's 22.5? Well, yeah. It's, it's Half the number of people get on the yacht? How do we do this? So it's 22.5 because uh, our hope is that we, were, we thought we're close enough to this pandemic being something like over, that it would be a shame to shoot our entire, uh, our, our content, all of it at, preseason and our hope is to do something in real life in the summer so maybe maybe you'll be back for part two or for part for the formal uh yes con uh but anyway thank you for doing this uh i think our listeners and viewers appreciate you checking in with us every year because it's a great way to do a sort of state of the franchise and i know this question was sort of asked you already uh because i listened to the listened to you on the radio but it does seem like the state of the franchise is good right now. Like this is, seems like a good time to be a, a sounder, especially after yesterday's win. You know, it's, it's a voting year, Jeremiah. So we got to be attuned to that. You know, this, <laughs> is the time, this is the time for pandering. It's, it's, it's right now. Yeah. I suppose if you're, I didn't realize that this was another uh, election year for you. Uh, is that what, what a luxury of you to not even have to worry about things like whether or not I, I know. Like right. Well, I guess this is, I, you know, I, I I guess that explains why you you didn't just sit on your hands and not uh, sign anyone this summer uh, or this winter. I, I like to think I would try to do my job well all right. the time, but yeah, but, but but yes, we we you know we got the. I mean, you've heard me talk about it. Uh, you know, we got a deal that we couldn't refuse on Rusnak, and that put us in a position where we had to do it. We knew we had to do another deal to to undo the financial complications of it. But you know, we've been fortunate, and we got Albert, and uh, you know. Huge thanks to Craig Weibel, which certainly would not have happened without him. And uh, and then we 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 took care of the financial stuff with uh, the the deal we couldn't refuse from DC United on on Brad Smith. So yeah, well, um, I I have to imagine that given all that, given all the the sort of on paper exploits of the team and and how excited everyone is looking at this team before they played a single game, it must have been a big relief when. Christian's goal hit the back of the net and uh, and you guys got that second goal yesterday. At least you don't have to worry about falling flat on your face in round of 16, right? Yeah, there's that. And, and you know, it's, it's, it, it's just, it was such a strange preseason, Jeremiah, because yeah. you had, I mean, everyone's like, oh, you guys been together a month. Like they, they've, they've been playing games for six weeks. Like it's not like, you're like, wait a second. But because of COVID, the World Cup qualifiers were all pushed back into January and February. And you had this three-game window again. 
right? And normally you would only have friendlies in that space. And so you'd have your national team players that were kind of gradually building up and then joining you. And instead they had to, you know, didn't really have much of an off season. And so then they came in, I think we literally had three practices before the first game were for our guys to even see each other. So like, it wasn't like, Oh, you had a, like, we didn't have any time together. And, and then we went to Honduras. And so like by the second game, we doubled the amount of the team that had spent together. Like it's crazy, but like, you know, when you're that early days, unfortunately for us, we had a lot of continuity, right? A lot of the same guys back. So it wasn't strangers, but it's just not, I think it's the most single most underestimated part of champions league is that first round is always going to be challenging and it really doesn't get more challenging than in less than a week trying to throw a team together where you're not even fully fit and playing it on the road and it's a long trip and all those things. So we had to, you know, this one was always going to be kind of survive in advance and the second leg honestly probably came together more quickly than, than even maybe we thought it would. So uh, that was encouraging. Yeah. Someone said to me yesterday, like Albert, Rusnak still looks like he's getting to know these players. And I said, well, he, he is like, he, most of the, the, most of the players he's playing with, he's only, he's only been training with for a few, like a few sessions. Like he had, he doesn't have that much time with any of these guys yet. Yeah. And look, and we're also trying to get to know Albert, right? I mean, we, we need to figure out what's the best role for him exactly. Right. What's the best combination of players. And, you know, and, and I've been talking about this a bunch in other media, Jeremiah, but, the, the difference this year may be that I don't know if our best, quote unquote, best 11 is going to be on the field week in, week out. You know, what I think we have with this team, with 28 guys signed and, you know, a bunch of those fairly proven players, you know, if we're too deep at every spot is we can manage the team very confidently. Like the most encouraging thing, if I'm honest, last night was that we made five subs and all the subs were good. Right. And Leo Chu scored a goal and, you know, uh, Roe came on and scored a goal and, you know, Roldan played three different positions again and, and, you know, had a goal and two assists. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we're going to have to see more of. I mean, we, we, we are now in March, the beginning of the season, going to play five games in 15 days as a result of advancing last night. Um, and that's not counting the Nashville game. If you count Nashville, then it's, it's six games in three weeks, six games in 21 days. So that that is a lot of minutes and games to pile up early in the season when you don't have full fitness levels for everybody. And so I think you're going to have more squad rotation than maybe you've ever seen from us. So the good news is, is we have a pretty good team and we think that we can be, we can compete on all fronts. Uh, you know, the challenging news though, is going to be, you know, if that best 11, let's say ultimately Christian Roldan looked pretty good as a winger last night. Right. And, and maybe Rusnak winds up central and, and Roldan winds up out wide. I know a lot of the, the preliminary feed was, hey, Rusnak will play out wide and, and Roldan will play in the middle. But I, all I would say is we don't know. But until you get a fully fit JP and a fully fit Nico Ladero and you get them all on the field together and you and by the way, a fully fit Rui Diaz. You're, it, it doesn't matter, right? Because you're just, you're going to move those guys around where they need to be to have the best outcome for where the team is right now. But I do think it may honestly take a half dozen games to get to a point where physically everybody's on the same page and we're not so congested that we're literally just surviving from one game to the next, to the next, because even just think of the, the challenge in the next round, right? It's not just five games in 15 days, but Lyon, again, is a big trip in between and you have the you have the two legs right and the first legs at home so you have to win so anyway without getting too far in the weeds 
there are a lot of challenges around who plays where, when, uh, in terms of trying to win on all these fronts. Like it's great just to make our statement of intent. I think we've done that, but the details really matter about how you go about trying to execute on that event. You know, someone asked me this and, and I had a suspicion to the answer, but I'll, I'll ask it to you. How much of that rotation can be planned and how much of it is, are you just by the nature of, of this whole thing, you're sort of forced to play it by ear and just say like, well, this is what our best, like, like, can you afford to like pick a starting lineup for Nashville before you even play the, uh, the second leg of, of, uh, of the Montagua, uh, series? No, but you can always be prepared, right? Just like as in life, you have a plan A and a plan B. There is nothing that prevents you from writing out, Hey, if we win, here's what the lineup is going to be for Nashville because we have this uh, onslaught of games. Uh, Plan B. Okay, this is what happens if we go up by two goals in the 60th minute against Matagua because then we can get some guys off to rest and potentially field a a little bit better lineup in Nashville. Because, again, Nashville's not a standalone, right? It's the first of six games in 21 days. So it's, to your point, it's a much more complex matrix of decision-making, but it requires more planning, not less. Right. So it's not that you can go in and say, hey, we're just going to wing it. We'll figure it out for sure. The outcome of Matagua and how we executed that outcome was always going to impact Nashville. But that's that's too simple. It's not just Nashville. It's RSL and the first Leon leg. All three things of those are are definitely connected in terms of building guys up in a systemic fashion, getting guys comfortable with one another. And if you say, uh, hey, we're going to prioritize the Leon game then that has a knock-on effect on both the RSL and the Nashville game in terms of uh, ramping guys up and, and both ramping guys up and on their load management because, uh, again, the, the, so that, that means two games on turf as well, right? Nashville's on turf, RSL's on grass, Leon's on turf. And, you, and with some of the older guys, you got to take that into account as well. And so I'm, I've always been curious about this. You know, you go back to 2011, you, you famously helped – RSL get to the brink of a Champions League title uh, against Monterey. And MLS teams have gotten similarly close, but no one has really gotten any closer to winning that. What Winning this, this championship, where do you think MLS is sort of hitting a wall? Like, What is keeping MLS from pushing through and, and having a team actually lift that trophy? Look, you have to, if you're going to try to win Champions League, you have to sacrifice MLS. And, and, and look, I, it, we are getting closer to the day where that's not true. But certainly when we went after it at RSL in 2011, we made the conscious strategic decision that this was what we were a small club and this was going to put us on the map. We were going to take a shot at Champions League and we didn't care if we lost every league game between now and then. And you saw, you know, the team that arguably got the closest since then in, in Toronto, in that 2017 team that won a lot of things, won the Canadian Championship, won MLS Cup. I can't remember if they won the supporter shield or not, but they, you know, they lost in penalties in champions league. You know, if you remember they, they yeah, they, 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 they didn't even field reserves in the games, MLS games in between, you know, uh, the, the champions league games. I mean, they went absolutely all in to try to win the tournament and they almost did it. Um, so look, as, as, as players develop, as academies come along, you know, as MLS next pro uh, gets its feet underneath it, it becomes more sustainable. Right. I mean uh, when you and I were talking offline beforehand, the part that was most exciting to me about the Matagua game is that we didn't win that game 2 nothing. We won 5 nothing. 
and we made five subs and won five nothing. And if you look at the team that finished that game, that was hugely encouraging as to what we can do, because now we can move beyond this idea of what is our best 11. And we have to have those 11 players on the field in order to succeed to, well, Hey, actually for us now, maybe we only need six. Maybe, maybe we need eight, maybe against the best opponent, you still need 11, but there are different combinations and formations of that that you can use and you can still be successful across all fronts. So, you know, I would say it's, it's that uh, prioritization. And I think it's, you know, as I alluded to earlier, it's, it's hard early in the season when you have very limited preseason preparation. You know, if you get a Mexican team in the first round, like the, the team I take my hat off to is Montreal, having got past Santos Laguna. I think that's about as tough an assignment as, as there could have been. You know, for us, though, we were, again, we were missing seven of our top 11 players to national team duty. It's just not possible in three practices to take on a Mexican team, on, you know, on the level that you'd be even a month later. So hopefully now, again, we're, we have enough runway here. We got through Matagua. We can build into Lyon. It helps us again. It's a team with which we're familiar, right? Because we played them in the League Cup final. So we do, we're not starting from scratch. Um, and anyway, so, so there are some reasons to think we can be successful, but I think it's the combination of the time of year, the cycle of preparation, and just the, the, the sacrifice that has to be made, that had in the, historically at least had to be made in order to really take a shot at, at Champions League. Is it overstating things to believe that something as simple as charter flights could also be a For like, sure could be an yep. element that helps yep. change that? No question. No question. Because those, those, it's all long trips. They're, the only trips you're taking are long trips. Right. You know, unless, unless you're based in Texas, you know, like in, and playing teams in Mexico, like everything is long. So for sure it helps. For sure it helps to get guys home. And again, when we're coming up right now, we, we talk about five games in 15 days. That make, that's where it really makes a difference because now you can get that extra night in a bed in the middle of that sequence that can really help you recover. Um, and, and you look, it allows us to control the food that the athletes eat, you know, during those periods as well. So we, we, we really have a much better chance to recover them. Yeah. I think, uh, Brian actually talked about this before the, the first leg of Montagua is that that used to be a two day journey. Cause you used yep. to have to fly to Texas and you'd spend a day in Texas, you'd train in Texas, and then you'd fly out and you might only show up in, in Honduras the night before the game. Now you can actually travel there as you would to any other away game uh you know a day or two before and you can get settled you can have a proper day of training you can uh get a proper meal get a proper sleep and and hopefully that you know that that's a the little difference I, the other area of margin i'm curious about is uh is the psychological aspect is that still a thing do you think when when it gets to crunch time when a trophy's on the line and and like maybe just in the back of their or do you think that that's no longer a thing. Like, are we beyond that? I think with the quality of player you have in MLS now, we're, we're beyond that, right? I mean, you're talking about Nico Ladero that's that's won a Copa America and, and played in the World Cup and, and you know, Rui Diaz has played in the World Cup and, you know, maybe Joe Paulo hasn't played in the World Cup, but he's played against some darn good players in Brazil coming through and Albert Rusnak's played in that. You know, you can go on and on and on down the line. I mean, you're talking about on our team, I think, at least 10 or 11 or even 12 guys that have played full internationals for a long time. Um, and, you know, so those guys, those, they, those guys, have, and we've played a lot of playoff games in the last couple of years. And, you know, what I think helps Jeremiah is leagues cup. Cause again, now, now it's not just knockout games, but it's knockout games against Mexican opposition. 
And so I, I do think that helps because you get more familiar with how those teams play. And when you have continuity, then from last year to this year within our team specifically, I think we could get a real benefit from that. But I, I don't believe there's some psychological thing at this point that like, hey, we can't beat a Mexican team because they're just, you know, they're so much better than us. We're, we're just lucky to be competing. I think we're past that. Well, the other big uh, news element that we've been dealing with or celebrating, I suppose, over the last uh, week or so is that the is you guys are announced a big opening of Long Acres. We just finished a conversation with Adrian where he talked a lot about that. And I don't want to go over all, all that same ground, but there was a an element to that story that I, I wanted to ask you about. And I had heard this story that uh, way back in 2015, the, the Sounders had just launched S2. They were getting ready to, uh, and, they, and they sort of made some promises about upgrading Starfire uh, for like making it into a little bit more of a proper professional stadium. And they were going to do some upgrades, I suppose, also to the training facility. And the story I heard was that you kind of looked at those plans and thought, well, this isn't really going to set us up for the next 10 or 15 years. Maybe we should be looking bigger. And so the question, the two questions I have for you is one, is that story accurate? And two, do you feel like now that you see what we're going to be getting in Long Acres, do you feel like that decision was ultimately uh, a good one? Yeah, look, as, as to whether or not Long Acres is a good one, you know, I've had a chance now to, to speak to some of the guys, you know, the Casey Kellers and, and you know, certainly not saying verbatim what we talked about, but you know, hey, could you ever imagine playing in a place like this when you were growing up in 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 uh, Seattle? You know, talking to Chris Henderson, stuff like that. And when you see those guys say, you know, kind of light up and be like, you know, this is amazing. You know, I always dreamed of this. Like, this is amazing. Like, it's all worth it, right? Like, it, it, it's that aha moment where you're like, okay, you know, this is this is this isn't eight years in the making since I've been here. It's not you know twenty years in the making since Adrian owned the team. This is you know this is a generational thing that we're doing here. And so I, I think it's absolutely worth it in that sense. Um, you know, to go back to, to the to the sort of founding story, yeah, I, I came in and, and and there were plans to kind of upgrade uh, S two, uh, you know, before they were called to come into defiance. Um, and you know, and, and the team was being launched, and so it was one of those where I had come in in uh, January of fifteen, and the team, of course, they've been working on launching it since you know the middle of the year before. So I was kind of coming in midstream. And, you know, we just, there were a bunch of things we didn't know about how that team was going to perform or what crowds we were going to draw, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of it was, you know, maybe an ounce of caution and proceed carefully and let's get a real handle on this before we invest and make sure we're investing in the right places. So, um, you know, yes, something to do with that, but I think the, the long-term play uh, to get a really world-class facility at Long Acres, I think is really going to pay off the franchise. Yeah, and I, I guess that opens up to this idea that, you know, we've heard a lot about this being a world-class facility and, and all signs point to, even if you had made this investment as recently as three years ago, it probably would have looked very different because this, the, the standard that MLS has now set over the last three years is so far beyond what anyone was thinking in 2015, but even more recently than that, like 2017. Uh, and so it's to me, like one of the most stark differences is like how much bigger the, idea can be and still feel realistic uh but beyond that how important was it though to keep up to sort of keep up and maybe even set a new standard because best i can tell you guys ne haven't necessarily missed out on anyone because of of starfire but it, it does sound like 
maybe that day was coming where you couldn't attract certain kinds of players if the Sounders training facility was really falling behind as much as it was in danger of falling behind. Yeah, you know, Jeremiah, this, this reminds me a little bit about one of the big questions I asked when I, when I came over from Salt Lake and I said, hey, you know, you guys play on turf at CenturyLink. And I was asking Adrian, I said, you know, how many guys have you lost recruiting-wise because of turf at CenturyLink? And he, he kind of looked at me, and he was kind of puzzled by the question. He kind of chuckled a little bit. And he's like, you know, there's 40,000 people that are in, that surround that stadium at CenturyLink. And it was, well, sorry, now Lumen, but then, then CenturyLink. And, uh, and, and, you know, you know, by, by my third home game with the Sounders, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, no one's, no one's passing on this because of the turf. This is, it's all about the fans and the atmosphere. And, you know, there's no way you're ever going to miss somebody because of that. And so I do maintain, Jeremiah, you know, we are in a little bit of a virtuous cycle, right? The team has won consistently. It's been consistently managed. It's been both on the field and off the field. It's been consistently owned. You know, the fans are, are the lifeblood of the franchise, you know, the ownership is committed to taking those resources and pushing them back into the team. And, you know, I don't think, you know, one thing, you know, about a, a training facility being, uh, you know, gradually becoming outdated, you know, look, we, we had like everything else we had to keep, you know, updating it, improving it, keeping it on a level with everything else. And I, I do think it got to the point with Starfire where you needed to make a decision. You needed to be either put more in, because that, I mean, that's a great facility. The, the people that run Starfire are wonderful. They've been great partners of ours. Um, you know, they have a great mission there in terms of helping underprivileged kids uh, and providing STEM education and, and a lot of other really good things. Um, you know, but it, it, it had gotten to a point, as you said, I think in the last three years, I think there were 12 new training facilities that were open in MLS and, and, it's just crazy when you see that that amount of infrastructure spending, and then you, you do have to have a solution, whether that's a Starfire somewhere else. And ultimately, uh, you know, we were able to find a, a really good opportunity with Long Acres, and and look, it keeps us it keeps us in the neighborhood too. So, I think that was that was desirable as well. You know, and I, I had never really thought about it this way, but I do kind of wonder if if Long Acres is almost as much about continuing to tell those fans that this is. That it's not just an investment for future players, but it's an investment into the fan base. It's an investment into showing amb- it's like a way of showing ambition, but also, you know, welcoming fans with something that is not just like come out to the park and watch us train train through a chain link fence, but like come out to our training facility and enjoy an afternoon that might involve more than just a training, you know, watching a training session, but like having a coffee or having a drink, watching a game, doing all these other activities that could potentially be uh, all going on at, at Long Acres. Yep. Yeah. Look, I, I think that's definitely part of it. And, and you know, we, we've said already, we, you know, we want fans to, we've always had fans as part of things at Starfire and that's not going to change. And um, I look, I think it's part of our connection and, and who we are. I mean, I think it's in the ethos and the Alliance council is part of that. And um, you know, so hopefully none of that's changed and yes, hopefully it's a signal of intent to, to everyone. And I look, I didn't sense that there was a lot of doubt amongst the fan base. Um, again, we, you know, when you're in these cup finals and MLS cups and stuff like that, that we were slacking a whole lot, but uh, you know, to the extent that uh, folks were concerned about the future, I think this does put those fear to, fears to rest, at least for the foreseeable future. So if I remember correctly, you were involved in at least the early stages of planning at RSL's new facility. You're clearly going to be involved in the planning stages of this one, but can we assume that now that, you know, it's two years away that you'll actually want to work at this facility as what you didn't get to do it at, at RSL? 
<laughs> I, it, the truth is that Weibel uh, did vastly more for that RSL uh, facility. We, when I was there, this was, I mean, this is so long ago now, Jeremiah. I mean, team, I know it's wise, crazy. I mean, we, we were happy at Salt Lake in, so this was, I think it was 2013. Uh, Cause I left after the 14 season um, that we got one dedicated training field that was, you know, within driving, the, it was, it was four blocks away from the stadium because originally we were in literally in a different community. I mean, it was kind of the distance between Lumen and, and uh, Starfire. That was what at Salt Lake when I got there in, in 08, uh, sorry, in 07, that was how far it was to drive to practice every day because we, because there were no locker rooms down at the field. So we had, we had a field, but it was no joke. It was a, you know, probably a 30, 40 minute drive where you'd have to get dressed and go down there and train, or you just train it, change at the field. And you know, it was very, you know, so like we had this the upgrade that we did while I was there was just, we got a field that was within, you know, at least a, a jogging distance of the stadium. Um, and so Weibel did their whole facility and he's kind of our secret weapon again to help us with uh, this new one. So I'm, I'm not sure if I answered your question at any point there, but I think I, I just wanted to you to guarantee that you're still going to be here in 2024. <laughs> that is that is well beyond my control as we started with right again I, I have yeah to exactly. see if good the point fans want me back and, and then we can figure it out from there fair enough fair enough uh but you know you bring up this idea of what training facilities used to be like in mls and i think it's especially stark when you look at what those training facilities were like in the 1990s when the league was first launching i mean how how vast is that difference between the the training facilities you were training in as a rookie versus the training facility that you guys are talking about opening in two years. Um, look, my, my favorite story, training story from, from my playing career was, was in Dallas. We had, we trained at a private school and we had a double wide trailer and we, we, we had dropped the double wide trailer in the parking lot of the, the private school and they had a peacock for a mascot. And so you would, and, and in this double wide, by the way, it's not, it's not like you had like a locker in space. Like there was the coach's office, which doubled as the video room. You had a training, like it wasn't even a room. It was like a, it was like a closet, like with like, with like one table crammed in there to take people on. Then you, and you had one equipment area that had a washer dryer and all the shelf space all within this trailer. And then you had to, you, and then as you got dressed, then you had to get past the peacock because the peacock could be kind of aggressive <laughs> territorially in order to get to the field. You had to get past the key peacock to get to the field. And you had to train on the field before recess because the kids needed the field for recess. So you had to, you had to get out there and do it. And, you know, like nowadays all the fields are, are irrigated, right. And, and they have under, they drain underwater. And, you know, when I was in Dallas, we had 41 days where it was over hundred degrees and the earth was literally broken open. I mean, from, from, and you were just driving, di you know, diving as a goalkeeper on the scorched earth, uh, you know, in the pre-dawn hours and, and just like, you know, living the dream. Yeah. That's every, every kid dreams of that when they, when they imagine being a professional athlete. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, I tell everybody, you know, I, I, my, my, in my professional soccer career, I, I tapped out, I made 40 grand one year. That was, that was the high watermark. So, the, you know, some of that's a reflection of my own ability, to be clear. There were guys that made a lot more than that. But, uh, you know, when you think that at the very least, like the, you know, Obed Vargas is signing for more money than I made at the, you know, at the height of my grandeur, then, uh, you know, the league has made a lot of progress. Well, you know, you, you bring up Obed, but uh, the 
academy is also a big part of this training facility. Like you're going to be able to have for the first time, all of your players, whether that be from the first team all the way down to the academy in one space, they'll all have their own locker rooms. They'll be able to presumably train even around the same time. Uh, You could theoretically have a coach or you could move from one field to the next and watch everyone training, which I imagine is not the case now, but uh, what is the, what, what does that do for this team's ability to move forward as a modern soccer club, like move into the next 50 years? It, it you know, look, it, some of it's just keeping up with the Joneses, you know, which I, there's a more eloquent way to say that, but, you know, as you said, I mean, uh, the world cup's coming, you know, these investments are coming in part because we hope that Seattle becomes a host city for the world cup. Right. And you're going to see a lot of, investment then in the community and in facilities around that. And you're going to see growth of the league. Um, you know, you've, the most obvious thing is the rise in the uh, acquisition fees, the expansion fees, et cetera, that have gone up exponentially uh, in the last decade. Um, I think you're going to see that trend continue. But, you know, again, if you're going to become a top league in the world post 2026, um, you know, and I think that's the ambition uh, then you got to do things, you know, like, like the big boys do. You do have to keep up with the Joneses. You have to, uh, you know, to put yourself on a footing to, uh, to handle that kind of stuff. And, and I think we're doing that with the, with the Long Acres investment. So one of the other things that the Joneses around MLS are doing these days is not only buying expensive players, but also starting to get into the global uh, sales market of, you know, we're seeing it at Dallas. We're seeing it at Philadelphia. We've seen it in Colorado. Even uh, we're, we're starting to see more and more. How close do you think the Sounders are to getting to that point where uh, it's not just uh, building the back end of the roster, but that it's it's actually uh, grooming players to be sold to bigger clubs in in Europe or or bigger leagues? I think we're there already, Jeremiah. I mean, I, I think once teams committed to building out academies and MLS committed to ha- to the MLS, what's now the MLS Next League and now MLS Next Pro, I mean, it seems like every couple of years, again, we're building out that infrastructure as a league to continue to facilitate this. I mean, when, uh, you know, again, to go back to when I played, I think we had 20 guys on a team, um, if I'm remembering correctly, and now we have up to 31 yeah, but the difference is, honestly isn't that stark in the sense of you had 20 guys and they were all expected to play in games there and you know, going back 20 years of MLS. And now you have 30, but it's really, if you look at the minutes, a lot of times it's, it's 16 to 20 guys in that senior roster that are playing the bulk of the minutes and then everything else is developmental. So what we've done, I think, is pretty smart and strategic. And now instead of having, you know, more journeyman, you know, run-of-the-mill average players, we've taken – a lot more high potential younger players, um, the type of players who could be sold, who could become, uh, you know, special players as opposed to role players. And we've really spent some time and investment in those types of guys. And I think that investment is going to pay off. I mean, certainly, you know, one way to think of it is last year, you know, when we, you know, we got a lot of praise, right? Cause we came out with 13 games in a row. I think it was unbeaten and all that. And we got six all-stars and, you know, we patted ourselves in the back a little bit, and then we weren't actually that special from that point on. And we went out in the first round of the playoffs, and ultimately, you know, it was, you know, kind of a minor disappointment of a season. You know, if if it's possible to be disappointed with a sixty-point season, probably probably shouldn't be. Um, <clears throat> but we also played four thousand minutes of under twenty-three kids, 
And that was more of that more or less fell from the sky. Now it didn't from a planning purposes perspective, but you know, the reason we were able to soak through all those injuries, you know, the change of formation certainly helped, but it was because of the young players. And, you know, when you talk about that, that minutes, I think we can even increase that total given the number of games, the competitions, open cup champions league, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, maybe your sweet spot is, is closer to 7,000 minutes or something like that. But, uh, you know, again, you, you want to play those high potential guys. And, and you're seeing now as we, it's part of its cultural, right? Like we just hadn't played young players here at the Sounders very often. Yedlin was the exception, not the rule. And, and even Yedlin had gone to college, right? So right. He, he was not, a, he was not. I think he was 20 when you, yeah, I think he was 20. Yeah. And, and, and Deandre was gone before I got here. So I, I didn't get to know him individually, but um, you know, now you're starting these kids and, and, and again, like what was last year? Like it wasn't just Josh Atencio. It was Danny Leva and it was A.B. Sissoko. And it was the game in Austin where you started five teenagers and won the game, right? And we're, we're an international story, um, you know, and now it's lo and behold, Obed Vargas, right? He's ready and steps in and, you know, let's not underplay that debut 180 minutes uh, against a, a foreign team, you know, to just go out there and act like, Hey, this is no big deal. Never like, looking out of place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like at 16 years old, like, you know, I, I think I was learning how to drive a car when I was 16. I can't remember any other real notable achievements at that point in my life. Like, it, and this guy's playing pro soccer like he grew up there. So, you know, a, a tip of the cap to Obed, certainly. But the, the point is that this is a progression, right? Because, again, we finished that team with Leo Chu playing a wing. And Leo Chu's now got two goals and two assists in 180 minutes. The guy's averaging literally a goal a game right now. <laughs> so, I mean, you can't have a better return than that. And then right next to him is Sam Adinaran. All he did was score 13, 14, 15 goals for the fines last year. And again, coming in and showing his pace and his power. And, you know, again, like some of them maybe aren't as refined right away, but like we don't need them to be special players. We can have that first 11 that's, that's elite. And what we need is for these guys to be able to come in and contribute and plug in the system and function within the group. And I think we've, we've really made a lot of progress on that front. And again, I think that'll help us compete uh, on all fronts. And I think it'll help us make, you know, lots of subs in games without disruption and hopefully keep our, our older guys healthy uh, and fresh uh, for when we really need them at the end of the season. So we, you know, we can make a deep run in, in hopefully in both Champions League and in, in MLS. So from where you sit and you're having to balance the need for supplying players for your first team and selling players that will presumably allow you to buy even better players down the road. How do you, how do you go about balancing those two needs that are see, that are sometimes at odds? Like there's that, like, I would think there's a, a sweet spot, but there's also going to be times when you're getting offers for players, but you, you kind of feel like you need that guy to, to help compete. Look, a lot of it comes down to the players. And I think this gets lost in a lot of this, you know, that, that teams are, you know, are lauded and celebrated, like they got this fee for X and, and that fee for Y. And, you know, every player is a human being and some want to go and some don't want to go and some want to go to very specific places and not to others. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit with Nuhu. Nuhu had, you know, named to the team of the tournament in AFCON earlier, you know, and like, what are you going to do? When's he going to go? Like, what if, you know, Hey, you really need him. Well, you know, we're going to talk to Nuhu and see what he wants. I mean, it's his career, right? I mean, and certainly we're going to have a say and it's got to work for both parties and all that stuff. But, 
you have to factor that into the equation as to what the players want and how you can be accommodate them, et cetera. And if you do that right, I mean, the fundamental, Jeremiah, is this. If you treat people well, they're going to speak well of you, and the next player is going to want to come and play for the Sounders. And as long as we have lots of players, particularly now that we have meaningful free agency in MLS, right? And we've talked about, ah, Rostock was the best deal so far. It was also kind of the first year of functional free agency, like a, a, a changed free agency where you had lots of good players available. You know, in that system, if we, again, if we treat people well, if we maintain we're the Sounders and we, and we do things a certain way, we're going to get a lot of good players through that process. Um, and so the sale process then becomes reflective of, are we doing the right thing culturally? And if we're true to that, then yeah, we're going to, we're going to make some money some years. We're going to maybe may lose some money some other years. Uh, but, you know, hopefully we're, we're making enough where we're, again, we're, we're taking those proceeds, we're pushing it back into the team. Um, and, and look, we do need to compete for the title every year there. That's what the Sounders are. That's when you put 40,000 people in Lumen Field, uh, you know, over and over and over again, you know, those fans, that audience expect a winning team and a, and a team that contends for championships. And, you know, this isn't going to become a club that sells, you know, four or five players a year um, and then just waits a couple of years and rebuilds and then competes every couple of years. You know, our ambition is to compete for championships every year. Um, and in the meantime, hopefully make some intelligent financial transactions, you know, similar to the Brad Smith deal, right? Like on paper, again, we got, we got lauded, you lauded us for what a great deal on Brad Smith, right? But if you look at it just on a, on a, on a human level or on a, a Sounders level, like uh, it didn't make any sense to trade your left back two weeks before Champions League started, right? But you had to make the hard choice because you knew that you were trading that two weeks or that four weeks for hopefully another year of the championship window being open. And so in that context, the deal made sense. And I think that's how you have, that's the kind of decision you have to make with the transfers. Yeah. And I guess along those same lines, uh, I think it's it, been interesting to watch how you guys uh, treat players that are maybe a little farther down the line. You know uh, the most recent example is probably Sam Rogers, who's now at, at Rosenberg in Norway and he seems to be doing really well. But at some point, you guys made the hard decision of, of sort of just letting him go. Uh, Ray Serrano, uh, another player who you, you guys have essentially loaned out to, to Louisville, uh, but you don't really have a whole lot of ways to get him back. But how important, I guess my point, uh, my, the, the question is, how important is allowing players like that who you might not have a necessary, necessarily have a clear path for in the organization to go out and find the best deal for them? Put Henry Wingo in the top of that list as well, right? Right. Yes. Um, and it's a, it's the same concept, right? Is is you want to treat them well as people, and and look, you know, some of those guys, you know, had their struggles with us, right? I mean, and, and it doesn't always work out with everybody with the best intentions. Sometimes it's not the right fit or it's not the right match, and it's better for everybody to get had to to start anew somewhere else. And and you know, as much as you you think of it in sports, and you think of like you know, the, the kind of middle tier player, like getting a fresh start somewhere. I, I think it applies more with young kids because you, you got to get launched. And in order to be launched, you have to have confidence. And in order to have confidence, you got to have some support around you and, and some, some, some folks pushing you up. And it's just, you know, it might be as simple as you have three guys in that position that are established. And no matter how good that, that kid is, it's just really hard to break through. 
Um, and so anyway, each position is different. Each kid is different. Each situation is different. Each family is different. Um, but yeah, if we treat them well, we give them opportunities. Some of those opportunities are going to be outside of the Sounders. But again, if you handle those the right way, and if you treat people well, in theory, those kids may want to come back, right? Like DeAndre Yedlin, and as I told you, that was all predated me. But DeAndre said some awfully nice things about the Seattle Sounders, even en route to signing with Inter-Miami, right? And now he was signing for a Sounders guy and Chris Henderson, right? There's no, don't miss that coincidence. But, you know, it, it certainly sounded like DeAndre had a really good experience at the Sounders and that this might still be a place where he finishes up in the end. And you know, again, if you have half a dozen guys out there that say that, that do that, you're going to reap the rewards. I mean, just think of a Kellen Rowe or a Freddie Montero, just to, just of the most two recent examples, right? Like both of those guys came back on below market deals because they had really good experience. I mean, Kellen hadn't even played for the Sounders. He's just from Seattle and, and had kind of just missed being able to sign with the 2009 Sounders from what I understand, or, or you know, it was just too, just beyond the, the homegrown rights uh, claiming period. So, um, you know, and, and those guys have been really important contributors for us. So that every, every little bit helps. Do you think your think your personal thinking on this has evolved during your, I don't know, I guess you're going into 15 years now as a, as a chief soccer officer in this league. Like, do you, do, has this always been your philosophy or do you think it's, it's sort of evolved and, and come around to a more holistic perspective? I mean, look, I, I think you, to be, to give a fair answer to that, Jeremiah, you probably have to ask somebody other than me, you know, in fair terms enough. of like, you know, you know, go back and talk to some of the guys that played for me at Salt Lake or something like that. But I like to think it's always been important. I know that when we started in Salt Lake, J, uh, Jason Christ and I, um, you know, we shared a great deal in common in the sense we'd gone to college together. We played in the pros together. You know, we literally lived in the same house together. Um, and it was really important to us to treat people well. And, and at that small little club, we felt like what made us competitive, that, that that was a real advantage because the MLS rules, they can be interpreted in harsh and draconian ways at times. There are things you can do and it doesn't mean you should do them. Um, or if, at least if you have the luxury that if you can avoid those rule-based outcomes, maybe you can find a softer landing or a softer solution. And we were always attuned to that because we always felt that that gave us a competitive advantage um, that, that we had. And again, coming to the Sounders where you have massive increase in resources, uh, it seems like the same is still true. And look, I ask questions like that of Adrian, you know, because Adrian's now, I think I've now, maybe this year, I finally maybe have a longer tenure than Adrian as a GM of the Sounders. It's, you know, it, it's, it's pretty close. And so I did I think ask that's him a bunch right. of those questions. I think you're yeah, right. and I, I did ask him a bunch of those questions. And it was clearly very important to Adrian that we treat people well, you know, and that that had been successful, you know, that there was no difference from the small club to the big club in that sense. Right. And, you know, Chris Henderson, you know, it's always it, the personality. Like I'm always like, if, if you don't like Chris Henderson, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> That's, you know, you, you need to reassess your priorities. Um, and I think again, that ethos really translated in terms of how we identified players, right. Cause as Chris was our chief Italian evaluator forever. Um, and, you know, he picked, good guys and he picked good characters and, and, you know, hopefully we treated them well. And most of those guys felt like we uh, were respectful of them. So along those same lines, how do you feel like the chief soccer officer position has evolved during your 15 years in the, doing this job? It's, it's, that's interesting. Um, it, it has changed completely. 
uh, utterly, it's, it's unrecognizable from what it was. So when, when I started in, in September of 07 with Salt Lake, um, I think we had a staff of seven. Um, we, got, we got all the way up to 11 by the time I left in, in uh, 2014. Um, but contrast with, you know, the Sounders are 35 and 40, 35 to 40, depending on, right? And this but is it was first team, first team, uh, this is the staff personnel. The right. This is the soccer, the whole soccer department. Like that's their full personnel. And, and to be clear, like at that time in 07, in 08, <clears throat> there was one team. There was one team with 20 guys. And I, I'm pretty sure our, the guy of those 20 guys, and maybe there's a maybe, but there was at least three or four guys that made 12 grand a year. And, and we had some that made 12 grand and some that made 18 because we had to put them all in a house because they couldn't even afford housing. They were, they were below, you know, a subsistence level from a wage perspective. And, uh, you know, so coming from that to just managing that group and the psyche of that group to then adding uh, for first academies, but then realizing that if you did academies, you really had to have second teams. And then you, once you did that, right, well, now we actually have to integrate them and create development for, uh, uh, departments. Um, and, and look, if you want to, again, go back 20 years, I had, when the teams I played on, we had a head coach, we had an assistant coach that and we had a medical person. That was a staff. That was it. I never had, a, I played five years as a goalkeeper in MLS. I never had a goalkeeper coach. I had, I had guys that volunteered and guys that came in and guys who are still friends of mine, Rich Barnard, still a friend of mine to this day was awesome and was really helpful to me but was not a, you know, a professional in, this, in the broadest sense of the word. And now we have, we don't have just Tommy Dutra. We have a goalkeeping staff, right? We have Josh Ford uh, there as well. And we have a, a part-time guy, Fred, who's coming aboard to help the academy. And you, know, you have a performance staff. I mean, one of Adrian's innovations was to start the sports science department uh, and hire Dave Tenney and, and Robbie Remenemy. Um, and now we broke off analytics from sports science. So like you have entire departments that didn't exist before. And now you've taken, gone even one step beyond that. And now you have departments that have, uh, our respective of the first team, the second team, and all of the player development. So you have multiple tiers, you have multiple departments, and that requires a much more sophisticated organization, uh, and a much more process-based, like as much as I preach evidence-based decisions, objective decisions, process-based decisions, a lot of that's of necessity because you, you can't reinvent the wheel if you're making the same decision about how you're going to train your goalkeeper when he's 17 versus how, how you train him when he's 24. There's going to be some subtle differences for sure, but you have to have the right nutrition. You have to have the right psychological platform. You have to have the right performance base. You have to agree on what the data means in terms of how you should load your players to get them fit. Um, so I can go on and on, but it, it's literally, it's a different job altogether. Well, and it sounds like, I mean, cause if I understood correctly, there was a time when the chief soccer, soccer officer was also the primary scout. He was the guy that was in charge of the cap. He was in charge yep. of doing all these things that were about, you know, one step removed from picking the lineup. Uh, and now you see a whole team of people who oversee certain aspects of that, let alone, uh, I mean, like you're a lot more removed, I guess, is my point from from picking yes. the lineup than you than you were when you started. For sure. No, I mean, look, we, we I mean, when we started Salt Lake again, like we we had to get DVDs mailed to us of a player that we were interested in. And like if you got two DVDs and you got to watch two games of somebody, that was amazing. 
Um, and so, yeah, so talent identification was a huge part of the job because it was just this incredible number of hours of just literally physical stacks of DVDs, taking guys out, putting in the player, watching it. And now we have software where you can literally as edited, so you can pull up any touch of any player within 24 hours of any game in the world. And so that just think of the scale of that information in order just to process that, that is, that is a big data problem now. And so you have to have someone uh, in the data analysis thing, looking at what are all the commonalities of those touches, those actions, those tracking events. Um, and then you have your scouts and then look, then you have, you know, what we call our sporting director and other teams called uh, a technical director, but even that role is so specialized now, right? Because, you know, Craig Weibel is the guy who's at practice most days, right? He's the one that's interacting with the coaching staff on a day-to-day basis in terms of processing the, the information that comes from all of this front office output to mesh it and marry it up with all of the on-field output of the coaching staff, the performance staff, the medical staff, et cetera. So it, it is this gargantuan pro- project where you are now as the CSO, you're an executive. That, that's, that's what you are. You're, you're running the company. And again, I, I think you're going to continue to see this evolve. You see this with, with Darren Eels in Atlanta, with Chris Klein in, in LA, with uh, Bill Manning in Toronto, with Tim Vespachenko in Columbus, you're going to, where you see the CSO person become a CEO like person um, where now you really have to funnel all of the strategic resources of the company and direct them efficiently in order to be as competitive as you possibly can. Um, and, and look, Adrian uh, solve, solves a lot of those issues for us, right? He, he's there. That's the function that he occupies for the Sounders. So that's maybe not the way we go, but that idea of having to organize everything across every aspect of the business, um, that is now profoundly important to being a CSO. Has the position evolved in a way that maybe better suits your, you know, you're a lawyer, you are clearly, you like to think about this stuff. Does it better suit you now? Or do you still uh, aspire to be in sort of like a CEO of a a soccer team kind of position? Like, what do you see for yourself? I guess the question. Look, I I think, again, I always want to get these questions. I want to stress, you know, it's been, it's been a a really good year in Seattle. It's been a lot of fun. Family's really happy. You know, uh, Jeremiah, you know, we've evolved good relationships with the media over a long period of time. So, you know, I don't want to gloss over that and and move past. Um, But, but look, you know, when you're talking about um, multinational corporations that run teams on multiple continents and multiple leagues, and you look at, um, again, the, the expansion of the ownership base of an MLS and just, the, just what's, what's, what's keep what you're capable of doing. I mean, um, you know, one of the, one of the interesting people that we, who we spoke to about our sporting director position before we hired Craig Weibel was a guy named Marco Garces. And I can, I feel like comfortable talking about some of this now because Marco just got hired by LAFC and Marco was this amazing candidate and he was running, he was talking, he was working with Pajuca at the time in Mexico but most it's, it's the norm in Mexico to run multiple teams or multiple academies. And, and you get, you know, you get other interesting challenges that way. So, you know, look, I don't think that there's a one size fits all. There's, there's not like a, Hey, I got to go do this to be fulfilled kind of thing, but yes, with an executive skill set, I do think that broadens the horizon of the possibilities of things there are to do. And for anybody, if you do the same job, without changing, without evolving for 15 years, you know, for anyone of even reasonable intelligence, that's going to get really dull after a while. Now, 
The good news is because MLS has grown so quickly, you know, again, coming from, you know, eight, nine, 10 people at Salt Lake, 15 years later, 35, 40 people in Seattle and multiple teams and multi, you know, international competitions. And again, a really diverse, varied ownership group with, you know, lots of interests and walks of life. You know, I think there's, you know, one of the things that, that I've grown into is, is, uh, you know, when I was a younger person, it was a, it was a straight march based on ambition. Like I, I, on some level, I felt like I had to leave Salt Lake because I had to go to a big club because I had to see if I could do it. And, you know, so far so good. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, want to keep evolving, want to keep growing. And, but some of it is, I think the league is going to keep growing and evolving. And, you know, there are a lot of potentially exciting things ahead uh, in that regard. Well, Garth, that seems like a good place to to call this. You have once again been very, very uh, generous with your time. And as always, we love having you on YachtCon. It's a great time to get to pick your brain and to learn a little bit more about this team that we love, the sport that we love, uh, this league that can sometimes drive us all crazy, but is so much fun to follow. Uh, and, and that you're such a open book uh in a lot of ways that gives us insight into all of this stuff that i don't know i I feel very lucky that uh to be following to be following and reporting on a team that is seems genuinely curious or genuinely wants to educate their fans in a way that helps them understand all of this stuff so uh thank you so much for for doing this garth look you're welcome but you know i i want to return the compliment because it goes both ways Jeremiah. again because we have such an educated sophisticated fan base it's not just that they're very broad but it's fairly deep and again that allows us to do things like we can sign the best player and that may sound like a completely facile simple thing but i'm not i don't know that you can sign the best player in la for example like you have to worry about marketing and perception and demographics and things like that and if you can just focus on putting the best soccer team on the field, I think that really is a, is a huge asset. And, and, you know, it's because of our fan base um, and their, you know, rigorous, uh, continuous support that we're able to do it. Yeah. Well, that makes fun to cover it too. Uh, that all the, it's all a virtuous cycle. Yep. And I feel very lucky to have some small part in that virtuous cycle. And I, I love that uh, the Sounders seem to appreciate that, they have a role to play in facilitating that cycle, not just kind of uh, uh, putting the product out there and, and, and it being a hands-off approach. But uh, so thank you for, for appreciating it too. Uh, and, uh, and with that, I guess I'll, I'll uh, tune out for YachtCon uh, 22.5. Remember we are getting back this summer. That's the plan. We're going to get in person and we're going to see people and uh, maybe even shake hands, hug if it gets really crazy. We got a hug, man. That, that's I got to get back to hugging again. That, that's, I know. That's, that's that's a big part. Well, you're a big guy like me, man. You need you need a lot of love. So <laughs> it, it's uh, it's uh, hopefully hopefully we can get back there safely. All right. Well, with that, I'll uh, bid you farewell and uh, thanks for listening. This was uh, I'm Jeremiah O'Shan, and and this was YachtCon 22.5.